Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Table Manners. I'm Jessie Ware and we're still Zooming with my mum. Hi mum. Hi darling, how are you? I'm alright, I'm looking forward to this guest tonight. <gasps> Me too. You will know this broadcaster if you have watched the BBC News at Six at some point in the last 13 years. It's George Alagaya. So George has also had a bestseller and critically acclaimed novel called The Burning Land. And it was his first novel that he did, and it came out last year, and it's now on paperback. It's a thriller. It's right up your street. Do you know, I've not been reading through lockdown, so maybe I'll give this a go. Oh, I like this. This is the line at the beginning. It was never meant to be like this. Sabotage, yes. Propaganda, yes. All of that and more, but not this. Not murder. Oh, I'm in! <gasps> George, you got me! Jeremy Vine calls it pacey and stylish. Much like George, handsome. George is a dish. Jesse, and do you know what? He's met my hero. Who? Nelson? Nelson Mandela. So we're going to speak to George Alagaya about being born in Sri Lanka, growing up in Ghana, and then being um, the presenter of the... Everything that's happened since. Sam, are you telling me to be quiet? Shut the door. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I was a bit enthusiastic about George Alagaya one sec. I'm getting in trouble. Fucking lockdown. <laughs> well, tonight on Table Manners Podcast, we have the wonderful George Alagaya. Oh, wow, and here he is tuning in. I bet he's got a proper microphone. Oh, he's got your microphone, Alice. Oh, this is a very uh, thrilling. Hold on. I feel like we should have some music going because George is connecting to all... It's like, the crowd go wild. We want George. We want George. We can just see the microphone. Oh, there Hi. he is. Hello. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah, that's the voice I recognise. Hi. Alice, is this a good time to hit the red dot? Okay, here we go. Yep, that's working. George Alagaya, welcome to Table Manners. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks, Jesse. You're in East London, aren't you? Hackney. Yeah, have you, you've been, I hear you've been there for quite a while. We moved to Stoke Newington, which is the bit of Hackney we're in, back in 1988, when it wasn't quite so sort of gentrified, if I can put it that way. I can remember people saying, Stoke Newington, why, what are you doing there? And of course now, I mean, if you look at our, our two sons, couldn't afford to live here and, uh, and in fact wouldn't want to live here because they think it's all gone a bit tame. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I used to live in Hackney. I was in Dalston, but I did frequent Church Street. And I'm not going to lie, it, it was kind of slightly, I was slightly embarrassed how much I enjoyed it because there are some quite good little Oh, it's spots. lovely. Yeah, yeah. you just got to get over that. I mean, and we just, we can always say, you see, oh, well, we, we knew it when it wasn't like this. <laughs> 
So <laughs> we got bra- we got bragging rights around here. But you've got great restaurants there. It, there are. Yeah, I dread to think what's happening to them at the moment. I mean, most of them are doing, well, a few of them are doing kind of takeaways. Yeah. And, uh, and veggies. Yeah, veggies. And, and you know what? Like Countdown, has, uh, not Countdown, Lockdown. Yeah, we are counting um, down, George. Most, <laughs> most of us, I think, have got, got into this habit of having at least one day with takeaway food, which is, I think, keeping these places going. So, yeah, we just go up and down the street and get a takeaway from a different restaurant every Friday. Do you ever go to Esther's? Yes. Our favourite place. That is the one. Oh my favorite goodness! Place I'm surprised breakfast. I never saw you there. <laughs> oh, it's the best breakfast in London, I think. It, it's absolutely. I, I see. What's going to happen to a place like that? Because you know, you remembered. I mean, it was tiny. It was as big as this room, and yeah, we used to get about sort of twenty people in there. Um, they got a little bit of a courtyard garden, which I've never seen them use, um, and they're presumably going to have to do something like that. But mm. quite how it's going to work out after lockdown. Oh, wow. But yeah, yeah, I absolutely love them. So this podcast is about food. And yes, you, you yes, were born I in... love that. Yeah, I, w- let's talk about this then. So you were born in Sri Lanka. I was. So um, I was five years old when um, we left, my family left Sri Lanka. We're, we're Tamils. And you know, as you probably know, uh, Sri Lanka was torn apart by a civil war and so on. But long before the violence started... Lots of Tamils began to understand that there was going to be discrimination and that they weren't going to fare well. So, in fact, my father, I think I'm right in saying, was the first kind of public sector worker in what was then called the Public Works Department to kind of resign on this issue. I mean, he was, they passed a law which made it very, very clear that uh, Tamils, and in his case, an engineer, wasn't really going to progress. Uh, and and so he just, he was out of, out of town, actually. He was, he was up in the... Uh, north of the country, he just drove straight back, handed his his resignation with no job to go, five kids. My mother thought he was mad. Uh, <laughs> and, well, and then he got a job in, in Ghana in West Africa, which is where I went to primary school. But on the cooking side of it, obviously we carried on eating. I mean, my mum, like a lot of Asian women of her generation, that was the thing she did. So although Sri Lanka just represents a tiny portion of my life, in terms of living there, it, it's kind of culture, especially its culinary culture, uh, stayed with us for decades and decades because uh, my mum would do the cooking. And I mean, I still have visions of her, actually. And in fact, one of her sisters had come to London. And you can imagine this. We had to have a sort of small terraced house in East Finchley. And she had a grinding stone. And the two sisters... Ch- absolutely yakety yakety yak you know but one of the you know grinding the other one pouring in the whatever it was coriander seeds or the chili or whatever and they she said they used to do it the proper way why did they choose ghana to go to they didn't have a huge choice i mean you know he needed to get a job he couldn't do it in sri lanka and ghana was the first country in africa to get its independence from the british so as the british left Ghana suddenly needed teachers, engineers, doctors, and so on. And my father was a a civil engineer. So the new Ghanaian government, this is 1961, sent a recruiting mission. And on our plane, I remember the flight, you know, we'd never been on a plane, obviously. And in those days, the journey to Ghana took about three days. But on that same flight, there there were two other Tamil families, both of them engineers, there's a massive brain drain um, of Tamils who just didn't think for their children there was going to be any prospect of their children getting on in life. 
And did you live in quite a nice area? Was no, it? No, we didn't live in any of the posh areas, but you know, my father was a public sector worker there. Were you influenced by the Ghanaian food? I think you know we didn't cook it, uh, and the person who who got most of it actually, I, my younger sister, I think, was about maybe eighteen months or something when we went to Ghana. But she had this very close relationship with our house worker, a guy called Charles. And I, I, I remember them kind of sitting in the yard, you know, sort of their feet touching as if we're both, you know, their, their legs splayed out. And Charles having gone to the, a local shop or something and bought what's called kenke, which is a, I think it's a millet-based doughy thing, a bit like mashed potato, but firmer with a chilli kind of relish. Mm. And the two... you know, this Charles, who was, I, I, he would have been in his maybe 20 or something, uh, and my sister, who by the two, three years, are sitting there dipping the kenke into the relish and, you know, all hands. <laughs> in your area, were there lots of um, other Asian families that had moved in, into there, or were you kind of... In Ghana, do you mean? Yeah. Well, there were, there were not lots, but we tended to mix with Sri Lankan families and... We didn't really have any white friends, uh, or, or my parents didn't have any. There were in the school I went to. It was a Ghanaian school. Uh, I, when I look at class photos, there were a couple of Asian kids, you know, like me. There was maybe two white kids, and the rest of them were were Ghanaians. And I mean, I always remember, you know, when white people came to our house, as they occasionally did. Very rarely, actually, but you know, like the whole house was on kind of tenter hooks, and all the best stuff got brought out and. And I can remember there was a Scottish couple, actually. In fact, we called them Auntie Greta and Uncle Richard. And Auntie Greta's still alive in a home in Boston. I mean, they were, they really, really kind of adopted us. And I can remember Auntie Greta teaching us how to hold a knife and fork and all that. Because obviously, you know, up to that point, we'd eaten with our hands. You know, even to this day, if we really get a good curry, then you'll see my sisters and we meet, you know, well, before lockdown, we met more or less once a week or something. But if, it, if one of them had cooked a really good curry, then you knew you knew it was a good curry when somebody just plunged their hand in instead of, you know, dabbling around, <laughs> with, a, <laughs> dabbling around with a fork or something like that. Somebody would say, no, 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 no I've, got to, I've got to use my fingers for this. <laughs> so have the siblings inherited your mum's skills at cooking? Well, the interesting thing about that, yes, basically. I was the only boy. I had four sisters, two older, two younger. Four sisters. Four sisters. Four yeah. bossy women uh, it, round you. Poor George. Well, they were. I think I was privileged, actually. <laughs> I mean, my two older sisters kind of looked after me, and the two younger ones looked up to me. And, <laughs> um, but I think it shaped me. I, you know, it was. I'm so glad I had all those sisters. I mean, they're my best friends. Remain my best friends. So on the cooking side. I think my mum will have consciously talked to my sisters about cooking and, and so on. What's interesting, and I never had that being the boy, but what's interesting is later in life when we all you know had our own homes and so on and started cooking, I realised there was all this stuff in my memory bank because, interesting, when we got married, I mean, I'm married to a white English woman. I mean, I don't know how you describe it. So she's, she's as English as they come, you know, from Sussex. And her dad was a lawyer. And my mum sat down there very carefully. We still got this greasy recipe book and, you know, obviously dictated all these recipes for chicken curry and cabbage malung and carrot sambal and stuff. And, and, and Franny, my, my wife, has sort of diligently written it all down. And when she tried to cook it, and she, she can cook curries very well, but in the early years... 
I realised I had a, just by looking at it, I had this memory bank and I'd say, do you know what? I think when my mum did it, it looked a little bit more ready or, or, or the texture was a bit firmer or whatever. So I, I had that. And still to this day, if we're cooking curry, then I tend to do the the chicken curry, say, uh, then I'll, I'll cook that. Stoke Newington's got some good curry spots, right? Yeah. Rasa I mean, is quite... I used to really like Rasa. Rasa's still great. Rasa's still brilliant. He's got... Um, Das, who runs it, you know, I mean, he's yeah. incredibly entrepreneurial. And, uh, you know, he started off, I think it was called Spices or something. In the late 80s, early 90s, there was a restaurant, an Indian restaurant called Spices, and he was a chef or something in there. And then he set up on his own as Rasa. And we still use the, get our dosa from Rasa's. Ah. And, yeah. Masala dosa, you know, with that lovely spicy mashed mm. potato in the, in the inside and a takali curry. Takali means means tomato and we get that takeaway quite frequently yeah and of course we've we've got a nando's but stoke newington being stoke newington there was a big fight about whether nando should come in or not you know might sort of lower the tone and i'm so glad nando's won because <laughs> i i love i a love nando's. a nando's what's your order I, I go for medium i don't go for the full spice partly because of sort of health reasons um, I can't do spices, or really spicy food anyway. But uh, when we were lived in South Africa, I, I was the BBC's man in, in Johannesburg. And we had both our boys there, obviously much younger. And uh, Nando's is actually a South African firm. Yeah, yes. So it was a treat. You know, it's all the boys, you know, everyone feeling a bit lazy on a Friday night. Off we'd go to Nando's on Jan Smuts Avenue or something down in Joburg, downtown Joburg. And, and so it was a fantastic when when it when it arrived in Stoke Newington, one little serious point about Nando's, yeah, and I, th- I think this is all right to say because you know how mm. you know we all keep telling ourselves how multicultural we all are, mm-hmm. but Stoke Newington's become kind, of, Church Street has become kind of less and less of that, you know, as it you know, as people like me move in, I mean, sort of wealthier people, but Nando's is still the only place where you can get where you do see a really mixed crowd, um, and I like it for that actually. Um, because the rest of it are all little independent, this and that. Did you live in Joburg then, not Cape Town? Yeah, in Joburg. Like every correspondent, you know, you get to Joburg and you make your first trip to Cape Town and you start writing emails back to your bosses saying, do you know what, I think we'd be much, much better served if the BBC Africa Bureau were down in Cape Town. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but uh, oh, no, it was Joburg. What was Joburg like? How, when were you there? So we were there from in the Mandela years, really. That's why I went. So he became president in 94. So 94 to 98, we were there. And it was an amazing time, actually. I mean, this icon suddenly, you know, gets elected, leads this country. It was then in the R years, still full of kind of optimism. It was the rainbow nation. Was it 1995? They, they even won the World Cup, you know, the rugby and Nelson Mandela wore the Springbok t- the shirt with the captain's number on it and so on. And, and it, we just remember it being a, a lovely time. And for, for the family too, actually, because one of the things, big differences when we went out there, we decided that Fran, who at that time was a speech therapist, she decided she wasn't going to work. I mean, we just thought, you know, we're away from home, two kids, we need to kind of settle them in. And she did sort of odds and sods, but never really worked. And, and the difference was that my income, which wasn't huge, but it was kind of enough, you know, we to rent our house and so on. And it just was the 
a most amazing period in terms of, of family life. I mean, I was away a lot. I did a lot of travelling and, and some ghastly stuff. I mean, you know, Liberian Civil War. Um, I remember at the time having, having to go up there and sort of it was always a kind of like a, a bit of a shock to come back to family life. But when I wasn't travelling, when I wasn't going to those sorts of places, Congo and things like that, Life of a of a bureau correspondent is, you know, you you have a bag packed and you don't ask any questions. When they say go, you go. But the rest of the time, your editors kind of leave you alone, you know. And um, so from that point of view, when I was in Joburg, you know, I could spend a lot of time with our boys, with Fran, and we, we enjoyed ourselves. And how how many times did you, or did you just see Nelson Mandela all the time? No, you didn't. I mean, you, you know, the whole world and his auntie kind of wanted to see Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And unless you were the Spice Girls or something, who seemed to be able to see him whenever they wanted to. <laughs> oh, Naomi Campbell. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah, interesting. There's a there's a there's a theme there with Nelson Mandela. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> he liked beautiful girls. Yeah. Oh, he loved. Well, I think in the nicest possible way, he loved women actually. And as a bloke, as a reporter, you just you know because he'd have this twinkle in his eyes and he'd flirt away with the, with with the female reporters. But sorry, I forgot the question you were asking me. Did you uh, ever speak to him? Yes, I did. Yeah. I, so I interviewed, I was lucky. I had, I, I think, a couple of one on ones with him. <sighs> uh, and there were a few other occasions. But actually, to, interviewing Nelson Mandela wasn't an easy thing to do because you could never get beyond this kind of barrier that he had. He always spoke as the leader of his people. So you wanted to sort of find out, you know, what it was like in the prison years. You know, he'd written about it and one could guess stuff to do with his family. And there was always a barrier. And I always wondered whether that was a kind of protection, actually, because over the years, as more people have found out about his life and what happened to his family and so on while he was in prison all those years, 27 years, there was a lot of suffering around. And I think he's alluded to feeling guilty. So he wasn't a great interview interviewee in that sense. I mean, fantastic on the politics, on reconciliation, what he was doing for his country, but anything personal was was pretty tough to get out of him. One of the things, I mean, several things I remember about Nelson Mandela, but of course one of the things he said was, you know, I don't hate the people, I hate the system. I mean, I he, he distinguished, I mean, you know, he, I mean, it seems the most trite thing to say about him, but, but colour the colour of one's skin wouldn't have entered his head. It was, no. it was, you know, how you behaved. And the other thing I remember, actually, more than anything else that, that he said, and in a way, this is a personal reflection. I remember asking him, you know, if he learnt anything in prison kind of thing. And uh, he said, in prison, I learnt to, let me get this right, in prison, I learnt to think through my brain and not through my blood. That's a good... You know, in other words, to think think calmly to yeah. analyze things because as a young man i mean we forget you know he's, he was a hothead yeah he was a hothead exactly mm. you know and he was the one in fact i think you know the anc used to kind of deploy when they wanted to go disrupt communist party meetings which at that time the communist party was sort of yeah. was really in the lead in terms of fighting apartheid i mean we're going back to the 50s and 60s here uh or sorry not so much 60s but certainly the 50s and perhaps before and and he was the hothead and yeah you know the the person who came out was this person who had learned to think as he put it through his brain george can i just ask you you have the most wonderful voice without any trace of an accent now how does a boy from sri lanka who lived in ghana end up with the most perfect Lenny, it's Received such English. a good question. It's <laughs> such a good question. 
And my sisters speak like this. We didn't go to posh schools. I went to what was in those days called a direct grant. So it was sort of like a grammar. It was, you had to pass an exam to get in. And then the bit that was fee paying was the boarding bit. There were about 100 boarders, mostly a lot of kids from the forces and so on. But my friends and I still in, in touch regularly with two of my classmates, uh, schoolmates, and they don't talk like that. And I think the only explanation I can give you is that, you know, for me, I came here as an 11-year-old child in literally in my first couple of days this thing called skin color and I didn't know I was black or brown or anything but in those days we used to have communal showers in school and I just got teased and taunted about my color and you know I mean that there's a whole story about that but but I think somewhere in the immigrant there is let me you know sink or swim and I, and I told myself, well, I wasn't going to sink. I didn't have a choice, actually. I was on my own in a boarding school. I left a, you know, a family in Ghana where there were kind of banana trees, guava trees, pineapple bushes in our garden, suddenly to a kind of a school playground, which is all tarmac, you know. And I had to fit in. I had to, I, and, and, and somewhere, what I was going to say is, I think in that immigrant mind, you maybe choose subliminally, unconsciously, the things that will get you that allow you to fit in, to fit in, basically. And, and remember, this is 1967. This was before we'd heard of the word multiculturalism. This is before there was a, a national narrative that supported people like me. And I, th- I think from memory, the Race Relations Act was about, the first one was about 19... Anyway, somewhere mid, mid-1960. So if there wasn't one around, it had only just been passed. I mean, you know... This Portsmouth in those days is a naval city. It's it's uh, changed a lot, but you know I can remember being chased by by skinheads, you know, shouting at my white friends, "What are you doing with a you know, etc. Cetera, etc." Cetera. So I can only think that, as I say, you you find a way to fit in, and in, in my case, this accent certainly was I, I think what was one answer to that. And the interesting thing about it, this accent is that. There was racism in Britain then and there is racism in in Britain now. But there's also, this is a country where class plays a huge part. And um, for years and years, I carried on having a Sri Lankan passport, even when I first joined working for the BBC. And, you know, we'd get back to Heathrow from whatever assignment we'd been to. And obviously my crew were all English and white and they'd go off on, on, you know, just zoom through immigration. I'd be queuing up with the Algerians and the Bangladeshis and everything, all of us getting very nervous. And you get to the immigration desk and it was just so interesting because all I, and this is before, by the way, people kind of knew who I was. Uh, I'm talking sort of very early 90s when, you know, I hadn't made a name for myself in, in broadcast journalism. But all I had to say was, hello. And something clicked in. <laughs> Welcome back, sir kind of thing you see jesse it's how you speak if you speak <laughs> properly you're gonna go far you know so i think that there, there, there was a sort of class <laughs> thing there was a class thing played in because they're suddenly thinking oh god well he doesn't sound like all the other you know people in the queue uh, you know he's kind of one of us you know so there you go How 
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I wanted to ask you, you're, you've got two sons, have you? Mm. And, and I, I believe you've got a grand, is it a granddaughter? Yes. <laughs> They're good granddaughters, aren't they? You can spend the rest of the time talking about it if you like. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'll get my pictures out too. <laughs> I mean, how old is she and do you spoil her like my mother spoils my grandchildren she's, with loads of sugar? She's, well, not yet, actually. Um, she's 19 months, so we haven't got into the... <laughs> oh, really? Because my son's 15 months and my mum's giving <laughs> him chocolate. I didn't give him chocolate. Lenny. I Lenny. didn't. My Lenny. daughter said he had one piece, mum, and she had loads. One so button. that is inexcusable. That's just not the truth. I give her a pound of chocolate. See, that's as bad, Jesse. Why does that sound better, though? Oh, because it's French, Jesse. That's Did you... all. Because <laughs> chocolate's hidden. Bouton au chocolat, and you wouldn't have minded. <laughs> well, you know, lockdown has been one of the... Lots of reasons why lockdown has been uncomfortable and not very nice, but the really tough one was not seeing her. I mean, we used to look after... Fran and I looked after her every Wednesday, and on a Mondays we'd... One of us would pick her up early and just and look and look at her just for a couple of hours. All of that obviously had to stop. They couldn't come to our house. We couldn't go to their flat. I think in the whole of the three months, until a few Saturdays ago, when they could you know come through the house and be in the garden, I think in all that three months we kind of well obviously did the whole daily FaceTime kind of chats. But otherwise, I think there were a couple of times where we kind of bumped into each other in the in the, in the park, <laughs> and and kind of did the sort of socially distanced walk um but it was very difficult because she would come towards us and we'd we'd back off you know because you, you were not allowed to touch them i know and in the end we in the end we just thought it just wasn't worth it but you'd had covid i had but you can still be a vector i mean i could have touched something you know just on the walk you know and carried it yeah george did it um affect your cancer treatments at all no so i at that stage let me get this right. So for about 18 months, up to very recently, for about 18 months, I'd been on a thing called maintenance chemo. So, I mean, I've not stopped treatment for the last six plus years. I mean, I must have, I mean, I've had dozens and dozens and dozens of chemo. 
And we were going for a family wedding. We'd planned to go to California for a family wedding. And I asked my oncologist to stop the treatment sometime around then. So I think I, I was I was on this maintenance chemo, which wasn't very powerful. I, I, I got I got my symptoms were on something like March 17th or something, uh, just just before lockdown. And I think I'd probably, ha- I, I coincided with my last bit of maintenance treatment because I said to him, I don't want to take any for a month because I want to get fit and feel good to go to California and I want to drink the wine and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I wasn't actually being treated. I've just come off treatment or maybe I just had one more to go or something like one more cycle or something to go. So I was lucky in that way because I do some work with Bowel Cancer UK and I know through them that lots of people had their treatment, especially surgery, delayed. And surgery is important, you know, because... If you've got metastases, if, you, if your cancer has spread, as mine had, I mean, I was stage four, so it doesn't get any worse than that. And mine had gone to the liver. Well, if you're going to operate, you need to, there's this, there can be quite an urgency because you really don't want it to spread any further within that organ because you might get to a point where actually you can't do the operation. So for lots of cancer patients, people living with cancer lockdown has been a very, very difficult time. Luckily for me, it, it wasn't. You know, there's huge anxiety, you can imagine, anywhere around around COVID-19. And then you're thinking, you know, when will my treatment start? When will the surgery start? And, and so on. Uh, it's, it's a tough time. Yeah. I'm back on kind of what I call grown-up chemo. So, it, in fact, I go tomorrow morning for and it's the start of three days. And, you know, that's at me out for a week. Are you working at the moment? I did. So I, it's a two-week cycle. And as I say, the first week... I mean, I, you know, I have three days of chemo and all, you know, all the stuff about you've heard about chemo. So there's no way I could work. I mean, you're just so, so fatigued. And then the second week, I sort of pick up on sort of day six or seven. I start picking up and the BBC has been absolutely fantastic. And I've gone into work in that second week. I'm now coming up to my fourth round in this cycle and I'll just have to wait and see, you know, whether work is possible because it's a cumulative thing. The stuff sits in your body and it builds up and that's the whole point of it, really. So you get to the point where there's lots of the stuff in you and it just becomes harder and harder. And I've, I've, I've been on this road before. I mean, back way back in, in 2014, I was on even stronger treatment. I mean, I can't, I don't know how I got through it, actually, when I think back at it than I am on now. Um so we'll see. Um, George, I wanted to ask, have you been writing? Because I read that you wanted to write a novel based in Sri Lanka, set in Sri Lanka. I, I do. Um, or are you kind of waiting to just do that and enjoying the fact that your book is out on paperback now? Yeah. No, I haven't started writing it. I've certainly started thinking about what my next project should be. And, you know, the thing about the job I do, which I, I love, you know, it's immediate, it's... Um, it's important. We've discovered just how important it is over the last three, four months. People have turned to the BBC in their millions. It's still the place they go to because they trust. They trust what we do. But it is sort of what I, you know, that's my kind of job thing. There's a creative side, if you like. And I mean, one of the great things about, I mean, I've got to hear the Burning Land, writing fiction is that people say, oh, why are you doing fiction? Well, the thing about fiction is that for me, journalism is about facts and fiction is about truth. Oh, is, why do you say that? In, in journalism, event A happened, followed by event B, and person C said this, and you got that result. In fiction, 
You can look at all the things, all the other things that motivate people. Why does a good man turn bad? Why does a bad woman turn good? You know, it's about lust. It's about prejudice. It's about hope. It's about aspiration. Those things that are very hard to talk about in journalism. And you can in fiction. You can get inside people's motivations and so on. And, you know, in journalism, there is a limit to it. And I think you, fiction takes you beyond that, as I say, into, into motivation, motivations and Although in, in one sense, the burning land is a very topical issue. It's, it's about the race for land. It's about rich countries buying land in poor countries. Some people are calling it new colonialism. It's about corruption. It's about the rich taking things away from the poor. That's the backdrop. But within that, I hope anybody who reads The Burning Land will see in it these, the idea of how, how people, how a country that was born after a centuries-old battle for a kind of freedom should have people who behave in this way. So where's it set, George? It's set in South Africa. Oh, South Africa. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I didn't know you'd written a book, but Jesse said, Jesse read what it was about, and it just sounds my cup of tea. It's a thriller. Yeah, it is a thriller. Um, if you like thrillers, you'll... Um... Love thrillers. They can make it into a BBC drama, George. Oh, can you go and talk to someone Come about on. it, Jesse? Yeah. Have you not sold Come it? Come on. God, they need a few new ideas, I'm telling you. There is a there is a production company that have got it at the moment and are thinking about it, but they need to find money and nobody's, you know, there aren't any kind of proper meetings and things going on, I don't think, at the moment. But uh, the interesting thing is, as I wrote it, I wrote it in pictures. I, I, I kind of saw these pictures in my head, scenes, and people said, was it hard to write? I mean, the plotting of it was hard. The characterization was hard, but the writing of it, when I got down to those things, was, was relatively easy because I was just kind of seeing this image in my head, this picture, and I was just kind of racing to describe what was happening in that, in that picture. So I saw it in a very visual way. Fantastic. George, before you have chemo and you know you're going to feel shit for a couple of weeks, do you have a, a kind of, well, I'm going to have a really nice meal before I go? Well, actually, that's why I haven't got a huge amount of time because that's exactly yeah, what we're going to do. Yeah, that's what you want. You're going to have a special dinner. So what's what are you having tonight? I don't know. I'm going to, Fran's going to have it. I know one of the things she's going to do. Yesterday, we, uh, I can't remember, busy. So we went to our, one of our favourite places Sweet Thursday to get an amazing so pizza. What is Sweet Thursday? It's an amazing pizza in De Beauvoir. In, in De Beauvoir, which is not in France. It's kind of down the road. In yeah, Hobie. I know. <laughs> uh, so we had that. But everybody sort of has a habit of leaving the crust. So you end up with everybody eating the middle, in the middle and all of the, 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 the crust around is the it sitting there. The crust's not good enough then? Do they need to work on their crust? Well, it's love. No, I, I love the crust. The crust. I, I, I love crust, but um, we were having a socially distant thing in the garden and, and my, one of my sons, they all seemed to leave it. And I said, what are we going to do? Said, I can't believe we're going to throw this away. And one of my sons, Matty, who had travelled in Lebanon and the Middle East and so on, um, said, why don't you make fatouche? I so we all drink oh, fatouche. Yeah. So you so baked it. I think Fran is is going. No, you fry it. Apparently, you fry it. Fry it in really good good oil. Yeah, and just season it. But if you, you you make a salad, raw onion, tomato, greens, throw in a, you know some parsley. Parsley exactly, and then apparently then then you do the frying so that you then toss it into the. Well, it's meant to be pita bread, but we're using pizza crust. You throw in at the last moment when it's still warm, and off we go. 
So that's we'll... such a that's a sustainable lockdown tip. Uh, What's George, that thing you called a life hack? Is that what you call a that's life, a life hack? hack? That's a life hack. Okay, that's a life hack. What? 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 What's that word? Yeah, you d- I didn't know what they were. A life hack is like something that you do to solve something which will be like whether you put an elastic band if you can't fit your jeans together yeah. with the button you put an elastic band around it so it will fit um, on the, so, on the so, button so how do you spell that life hack it. it's a hack like a journalist like you know yeah. hack <laughs> and, and a life hack okay. and you've just supplied possibly so the best life hack fried up. that table um, George, ever before had you go <laughs> there's some yeah. really important questions we have to ask you your desert island meal uh, starter main pudding and drink of choice right a drink of choice would be a nice cool sancerre mm. a, a french white um i think it make me sound really posh actually but no. you know anyway because i don't know a huge amount about it but i do know I, god if you're going on a desert island for a few months you can have a sancerre but the problem with that because that's i really like the wine but you can't have it with a curry oh why so, couldn't really no no, it just kills the kills the wine. Have that first and before with your appetizers. Exactly. Yeah. Lenny, you're on my wavelength, so you'd have the wine first. Yeah. You're having two drinks, it's fine. Then I'd I'd probably like I mean I I'm not into I mean Tamil food is like red, red hot. I mean I don't know how I don't know why all these Sri Lankans well actually not I not Tamil food, Sri Lankan food. I don't know why they haven't all got sort of stomach ulcers and things. Um so I wouldn't have it very hot. I'd 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 go for a, a soddy. Um, which S O D H I, which is almost like a sort of a fish soup, but with kind of boiled Ooh. egg in it. It's a yellow turmeric oh, wow. color, and it's the consistency is slightly soup. And and you'd have it with, I mean, you could have it with bread, but I'd, I'd probably have it with pittu, which is a steamed rice flour dish, and and it just soaks up all that sodhi, all that lovely, lovely stuff. So I'd probably just have that, and 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 oh, well, the greens, um, you know, it could be anything. I'd like a good salad. I mean, I know it's not part of the curry thing, but, you know, why not? You know, it's desert island. I'm on my own. I can do what I want, can't sure. I? Sure. What are you sure. drinking with it now? Now I'd have beer. Beer, okay. Now, which beer goes best with a curry? Well, I, don't, I think it's just as long as it's a lager. So you just want something that cuts through. Well, I don't drink anymore because it makes me feel so ill with the chemo. But when I do, I like a, a good pale ale or something, you know, but... Um, it, it, that's more subtle and you need to enjoy it you know and I, th- and I think you're using the lager really cold ice cold lager just just to kind of cut through okay yeah all right pudding pudding um i tell you what i do <laughs> this is what? i like a lemon posset <laughs> i understand that oh i understand that i mean it's lovely I made them. Do you remember, Jesse? Bloody good. You said it was really good. Heavenly. Dead easy, isn't it? Yeah, dead easy. I've never made it actually. Fran makes it all the time. She knows I love it. So easy. Um, So I'd I'd probably go for that, and then just because I'm on a desert island, obviously it's tropical and there's loads of fruit and everything there. Oh yeah, you'd be all right. I'd have some, you know, kind of some uh, mango or something, just to kind of, you know, I'd probably do that. Actually, I'll tell you what, I'll do that in between the courses, just to wash, cleanse the palate. Very I'd, nice. Yeah, I'd have a bit of mango maybe before the main meal. In, in fact, you know what, Fran, we used to, she does, especially when the kids were here, we always had our fruit before the meal because my my wife's kind of into biome and um, you should be interviewing her really because she knows a lot more about food and tables. She's really into sort of 
those kinds of things and and i don't know what, what the, the science is but apparently it's better to have your fruit before you have the other stuff so it's better for digestion or something right apparently i think yeah. so yeah. yeah i think so have you got good table manners george jesse what are you saying listen to the voice uh, well, thanks to auntie her, um, auntie scottish no, well, auntie what's her name auntie auntie greta auntie greta taught you everything yeah. you know she, but we've abandoned all that i mean she, for me a table is a place where there's groaning with food there's a multi-generational group of people around it and table manners go out of the window and you, and you just reach out and grab whatever you want and it just keeps coming and so on. So, no, I'm not a big one for, for, for table manners. You know, you've got, you've got to enjoy the company. I mean, it's, it's food and, and people, for me, go together. I always find when, when we travel, you know, there's only so much of kind of like the museum and the art gallery and the, you know, ruined sort of centuries old ruined buildings that's the food <laughs> I, I i have to find out where local people are going sit at a table and just kind of watch all that lovely stuff because food in in, in our culture is a central really really important part of it i mean my mother cooked with a care and an attention and an affection that that i remember tangibly you know it's something i remember now and and for me, the thing that's going to happen when we finally get rid of this lockdown thing is we're going to have all my sisters. We'll, we'll probably come to our house because we've got the biggest garden. Uh, and we'll just have sweet chaos around the table. That's what's going to happen. That sounds beautiful. <laughs> and lastly, karaoke song. Do you Ooh. like it? Would you sing it? What's your song? Well, it would have to. The thing I sing in the shower yeah. is me and Bobby McGee. Oh, Wow. You and me and Bobby... Chris Christopherson. Chris Christopherson, darling. Busted flat and Baton Rouge and heading for the train. Feeling nearly faded as my jeans. Bobby thumbed a diesel down. So on. You, me and Bobby <laughs> McGee. Bravo, yeah. George. So I, I do that in the shower. So I guess that would have to be, be the one. George, it's been such a pleasure so talking wonderful. to you. Um, good luck with the chemo uh, in the next three days. And it's just been so fascinating chatting to you about all your stories. And The Burning Land is out on paperback now. It came out yeah. last year, yeah. hardback, hard. and now it's out yeah. oh, I'm gonna get it. in paper form. Well, it was slightly, I think I'm told today, it's been out of stock in Amazon, but I'm told today, I got an email. So, Mazeltoff! Yeah, so yeah, so you can, and I think Waterstones were out of stock, but I think I heard that they've got it as well. Oh, great, we'll definitely get it. George, such a pleasure. Enjoy your meal. Thank you. And I'll remember that I've learned life hack. Oh my God, I love George Alagaya. That voice, Jessie, it was like velvet. That face, that voice, those stories. He was gorgeous. I loved that episode. I loved his stories. I loved speaking to him. He's he, fascinating. Do you know what? He was also very polite and warm and like, oh yeah, that's a good point. Oh, don't yeah. that make me feel so special when he said asked- that was a great question that you asked. Yeah. Just so lovely. He was one of the best we've had on. He's going to be my new favourite. Thank you so much, George Alagaya. I 
really love you. I loved you before and I always loved the six o'clock news. However, I've melted after that conversation. He's a real heartthrob. He's the George Clooney of the um, BBC News. I'm going to get his book because I'm sure if he, he will tell a good story, I can tell. And it must be really interesting. You, you're a reporter, you're a news reader, you work for the BBC, you have to be non-partial. So I'm really interested to see the passion that comes out in this fictitious novel thriller. I'm sure there's some hidden stories in there that he was never allowed to tell. Fiction is about the truth. Love that. Thank you, George Allegaria. We love you. The rest of uh, the UK loves you too. And um, Good luck with all the treatment. Yeah, and good luck sending you loads of love. Um, everyone who has been interested by this novel The Burning Land it's out on paperback now thank you for listening thank you for your continued support during this lockdown we can't wait to cook for people again and see people in the flesh who knows we could be going into someone's garden soon that would be lovely The music you've heard on Table Manners is by Peter Duffy and Pete Fraser. Table Manners is produced by Alice Williams.